0: Of all the guests we've had in the past several years of of the Wax Museum, perhaps the one who's caused the most conversation, uh, not controversy really, never controversy amongst uh, people of enlightenment, yet questions, probing questions asked and uh, being made to think. Of all the guests we've had, uh, Jimmy Baldwin is certainly the one who's caused uh, much of that conversation. And incidentally, the the issue of perspective with the uh, James Baldwin interview is now, I imagine, something of a collector's item. And James Baldwin is our guest once again. It's a few days after the abbreviated heavyweight championship fight which he came to Chicago to cover for a national magazine. James Baldwin, so much has happened to you since the couple of years ago of the interview. You've been to different lands and you've been involved in different enterprises. What has happened to you? Where do we begin with you, your thoughts? Have there been changes in your way of thinking since we've talked?
1: It's a very good question. Um, yes, I think so it would be hard to say what kind of changes. Um, on the other hand, maybe there have not been changes at all. Maybe, you know, I just discovered, um, maybe you simply go on, you discover more about the road you're on, you know, and that um, and you discover more about the things you believe, because life forces you to act on what you believe. So I don't, know, I don't know if I can say that there's been a great change in my thinking, but there's been a great change somewhere in me, which. I can't put my finger on. Well, let's perhaps
0: be more specific then. The change in you as a writer, a writer... You've written a book since then. A book. You spoke of the book, Another Country, yeah. at the time when you were writing in Switzerland, and the book has come out since and has mm-hmm. received reviews that are pro and con.
1: Very pro and very con. But, you know, um, very bewildering reception. I don't know what I expected. Um, I like the book myself, of course, when I to say that. But I mean, I do. Um, it seems to have frightened some people. Why would be very hard to say, since in some way, after all, it had to frighten me first. And now I can't remember precisely where my areas of distress were, you know, when I was working it out. Because there's something you blot out of your memory, I think. People think, seem to think of it as a very harsh and bitter book, and in some ways it is. But, um,. In my own mind, anyway, it's a very affirmative book, and if I may be corny about it, you know, it's meant to be bitter. When it's bitter, the way medicine is bitter, uh, I'm trying to excavate, if I can use that word, something about what is really happening in America, according to me, and from my very limited point of view, my limited vision, which is hardly ever expressed. And it's really a book about the nature of the American loneliness and the and how dangerous that is how hard it is here for people to establish any real communion with each other, and the chances they have to take in order to do it. At this
0: point you make the, the loneliness and the danger of loneliness and the difficult communication in America here, you think there's less of that in the countries you visited?
1: I think so, yes, it's, um, by which I don't mean, it's always very difficult when you talk about America, you know, people always say, well, is it any better anywhere else, which is irrelevant. But yes, I do think so. I think that um, even in France, which is certainly, you know, a very troubling and troubled and corrupt, um, many ways corrupt country, there is um, a certain level of personal, um, how can I put it, an assumption on the part of the person of a certain largeness and a certain freedom, which is very hard to come by here. In Africa, which I just left, um, which lacks, God knows, a great many things, you know, it has one thing which we don't have, which is a kind, of, a kind of joy among the people, which sounds very... That always sounds corny, the word joy is always terribly suspect. Well, tell me more about that, about this joy among the people and some of the countries that you visited. Well, it began for... I went there with my, one of my sisters. And the way it began is, turned out to be typical of the way it was going to continue. We were standing in line at the uh, at Dakar, the customs uh, shed, waiting to be allowed in, because I'd arrived in we'd arrived in Dakar without any visas, which was my fault. Well, when we while we were standing in line, a little girl of about three or maybe four, but certainly not more than that, who was standing some distance from us, holding her mother's hand, looked over at my sister, and smiled, and my sister smiled at her, and then the little girl left her mother, and came running over to Gloria. And made and made Gloria pick her up, and all the children we met in West Africa were like were like that, and I never saw or I saw very rarely, you know, a crying child, and I never saw anybody beat a child, and now this sounds, you know, I suppose it's very um, dangerous thing to do to draw any conclusions of any kind from such a from from this. And yet it seemed to me it was very, very important. Someone said to me, it's impossible to be an orphan in Africa because all the children belong to all the, um, you know, to all the grown-ups. And as far as I could see and everywhere I was, this was entirely true. And you could tell it by the way children treated you. By the way children treated you? Well, the way they came to you. With a you certain know.
0: kind of uh, oh, openness. An,
1: an entire openness. No, mm-hmm. no, no self-consciousness, no... Uh, you, there you were and there they were, and obviously, you know, you... Um, you were grown up. Well, since you're talking about some of
0: the West African countries and the sense of joy, which perhaps could be equated with sense of freedom, too, I yes. suppose. a you know, certain freedom. kind of freedom, yes. Uh, perhaps uh, some of the countries, the, the <coughs> what is going on in the fields of, say, theatre, writing, uh, creativity?
1: Yeah. Do you find a great deal of... It's harder to, it's harder you know. to assess for me because, um, how can I put it, in a, in a way, There's a great barrier of language. Now, I don't mean that quite the way it might sound. Um, for, for example, there are some poets working in French, African, West African poets working in the French language, who are very, you know, who are who are very important. And of course, one thinks immediately of Senghor. or you think of Aimé Césaire? I. But when I say the barrier of language, I'm referring to the fact that there are so many languages in Africa, you know, and that um, in time. I think at about this time, really, you know, poets are about to be produced out of these various dialects, you know, who will then have to work in French or in English, you know. Ah, this becomes a Do problem see, then, that is unique, is it
0: not, to Africa? I Let us say, Nigeria will then have such a variety of dialects and languages yeah.
1: that it's hard to pinpoint who the creative spirits that's, that's, are, that's right, centrally. That, that's right. Because there may be a very great poet living in this village, writing in a language which is, which has no currency, except in the village, or, you know. But I imagine then, tribe. what will come out of this eventually? Oh, I think something very rich, you not know, very uh,
0: variegated too. Uh, yes, but
1: that's right. And it will change French and English. Well, you no, know, thank it heaven.
0: Is, it will change. You, you, you mean? Do you feel there'll be a synthesis of in
1: language or? Well, the problem they have in education, for example, is how to. Um, let us say, if you're a school teacher in West Africa, and you're you're teaching in English or in French, it scarcely matters. The problem is how to. Um, how to translate the images of the language in which, the, which the people speak, you know, the, the tribal language which they speak, they have a way of saying, for example, let's say wall or water, and a context for it, wall or water, which is not English or French. Now, in order to, to, get, in order to teach these people how to speak English or French, when it's first got to make the word water connect with their word for water, you know, their word for wall. And, and where this has not been done, it has not been done really. You you observe a great many Africans in English, especially, using the language in a very um, in a very stilted Victorian way. It has obviously not become really their possession uh-huh. yet. So you something see? becomes rather formal when someone is new to That's a right. language. The That's formality right. That's right.
0: takes precedence over the yeah. complete ease. E- exactly. But eventually, problem, yeah,
1: the problem is to, for the experiences yes. of these villages yes. to work its way into into the English language. And in that sense, it would, have, it would have to vary, you know, and uh, and change English language in very much the same way, but more violently probably than that the that the American Negro, the presence of the Negro in this country has had has had a tremendous effect on the way all Americans speak. On this point, for example, the, the use of certain American slang or the
0: so-called hip talk has right. become part in the past that can become part of the American lexicon.
1: That's right. That's right. A lot of, and a great deal of, of you know the American. Uh, Lexicon comes out of the spirituals, for example, you know, in the frame of reference, even, you know. And so in Africa,
0: with so many <coughs> of the languages and so many of the dialects, the language that eventually will
1: come forth should be fantastic. Should be a fantastic rich. language, yes, because there's, there's so much unexpressed, you know, which, is, which has got to become, has got to arrive at a level of expression. Of the countries this you visited, uh, Nigeria? I didn't get to Nigeria. No. I went from Senegal to Guinea, to Sierra Leone, to Liberia, to the Ivory Coast, to Ghana. Is there one of the
0: countries that you visited you found the most, uh, well, what's the word, uh, electricity perhaps,
1: uh, in, in the creative sense of it? Well all of them are electrical in different ways, it's, um, all of them are electrical in different ways and they all have different, different attitudes towards their relationship to Europe, which changes you know, the climate in the country. I liked Sierra Leone very much. Um, for reasons that it's hard to say, but in Sierra Leone we were very lucky, we were had a, a great friend, a driver, who dro- a man who drove us around, who's now here in this country with the UN. And he knew everyone in Sierra Leone, and if he didn't know them he was related to them. So that we had, you know, we, could, we went through many villages and talked you know, talked to many people and he. Helped us, you know, helped. Us, he interpreted for us, and in some ways, since he was so deeply involved in the life of Sierra Leone himself, and just walking around with him was very illuminating, you know, about the problems in Sierra Leone and the potentials in Sierra Leone. It's. Um, it's hard to talk about creative energy in any concrete sense yet. I brought back a lot of manuscripts, which I haven't, I haven't yet had time to read. Yours then,
0: it's a series you're planning for, the New Yorker magazine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yours then will be a series of impressions, won't they?
1: First impressions. Well, have to be, because yeah. I, the Africans kept asking yes. me if I were going to write a book about them. They, they resent those people who come to Africa to write books. and spend three weeks and, come yes. and go home as African experts.
0: So it's first impressions, then. Yeah. yeah. I know
1: the question I want to ask you. It's been in the back of my mind, you're
0: rolling around like a loose cannonball, I know what it is now. I think of Africa, uh, we may have touched on this slightly during the past interview, and the history, the tradition long before the kidnappings occurred. Now with the new democracies there, are, is there a digging back into
1: the civilizations? You, has there yes. been have you come across this? It was a great effort to dig back and to, and to resurrect, to excavate what was there before Europe, but it's not too easy to do. Because oh, for many reasons. political for, for, for above all for political reasons. Because um West Africa is um we are not really speak yet authoritatively, I don't think, you know, of the new of the new democracies there. They're democracies in, in you know state of flux. In a state of flux or in, or as we could, as it were in progress. But um there are too many elements, too many disparate elements to to, um, to somehow be made into a, something homo- homogeneous. You, one begins to realize, for example, the idea of nations is really a very new idea, you know, and quite apart from its intrinsic value, which one may or may not question, but that's another, that's something else. But that most of the people in Africa, as far as I could tell, and most of the people in Africa don't live in the cities, after all, they live in the villages, don't really seriously think of themselves as being um, Ghanaian or Guinean or whatever, you know, or still less as African, but as as tribal people. Now, I don't mean this in any derogatory way. I mean that 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 is the way the life is set up, you know, this is the way the villages operate and have for years. And it was also very useful to Europe to have it that way, you know, so there was nothing, very little was ever done to, you know, to undermine it or overthrow it in that sense. You know, I mean, it was useful to have the chief used by the British, what the British call indirect rule. Now, this had disastrous effects in other ways, but in a way it tended to confirm you know, the, the hermet- hermetic quality of, of I think, yes. of African life, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I follow now, this, I follow this, yes. Now, if the problem in all these nations really is somehow you know, to inculcate in the populations a sense of a new identity, really, because that is precisely what they, you know, what they are on the threshold of, but it's not so easy, you know, it's not so easy to achieve this.
0: Establishing it, something that hasn't been there for centuries, perhaps was there centuries before, perhaps, yes, we yes, don't know. Yes, But But perhaps the tribal setup was there from... Pre-
1: no one, early no, early one no, no
0: one knows enough. But it has to start then, the finding the new identity where uh, there, there was none before. Essentially, this, yes. But yes. at the same time, uh, in among the people with whom you spoke, is the feeling that some of
1: the tribal aspects must be retained. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. and I, I myself think this, you know, though I probably have no right to speak, but um, which tribal aspects are to be retained, how, you know, what value will they have, you know, and you must remember too that all of the, this is not in the Western press, but all of this is after all being done under the great shadow of Europe, you know, and in many places in opposition to it, you know. The one thing that struck me very forcibly, not the one thing, but many, th- you know, was that most of the Europeans in Africa were entirely unable or unwilling to accept any of the implications of their role in Africa. That is to say, they were always very defensive about it. And this, of course, has a, has a, has a disastrous effect on, the, on their relations with the African, and it, and it tends to, to create a necessity on the part of the African to identify himself according, as Europeans have, according to, to racial blocks on the basis of color, really, because white people still do, and white people still have a, a vast amount of power in Africa. And this is rather frightening, you know, thing to think, to think about. But the Europeans the Europeans continually claim that there was absolutely nothing in Africa before they got there, which is obviously not true, and the Africans, you know, it's a great, great temptation to make, uh, you know, make it, to make an extravagant counterclaim. No, so that um, in some some places in Africa, you know, there's a whole new history being rewritten, or rather invented, yes. which you know it turns out that the Africans taught most of the world what we know. Now neither n- neither side neither, neither side is true, you know, but this is this is the, this is the whole tricky area of politics and economics. To even make a pun, neither white nor black, neither white sense. nor yeah, black, yeah, yeah. yeah, the the
0: the uh, Jim Baldwin. Your impressions, obviously, as you say, our first impressions. Yeah, I notice you're yeah. being uh, circumspect in your comments, too, because they are your first end. And I don't know anything you, about You don't Africa. tend to be a pundit. No. But at the same time, these impressions are rather vivid and graphic ones.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes, a sense
0: are. of joy is there with all the conflicts
1: involved. Yes, well, they have, they have a relationship to each other, which is um, never become anything resembling, never achieved the nightmarish self-consciousness of relations people have in the West, especially here. You've come back. Uh, uh, see, you know, we're
0: now uh, talking on two separate subjects. Earlier, you talked about loneliness, that was in your novel, and now about Africa, and they're both connected. The subject of loneliness again, yeah, you see, yeah. that you did not find there.
1: No, see? not that loneliness. There's, something, there's another loneliness What there. kind? Well, the loneliness, for example, of some people I used to know in Paris years ago, who were living in Paris because they left Senegal or Guinea, and who went back to, get to Senegal or Guinea when when these countries became free well they've been away a long time they've been in Europe for five or ten years and some of them I know a dancer who was you know a star in Paris and it's very difficult when they go back and, and this, neither is this meant to be in any sense derogatory what I do mean is that if you lived in Paris for ten years a certain way and if, uh, lived in a European frame of reference you know and have gotten used to such such simple matters as if, as a fact that when you pick up a telephone and dial it that it works. Well, it is a great wrench to go back to Guinea where nothing works, you know, really. And this you no, know, I mean nothing works because there is no capital, and, and there is not a, a cadre yet of um, of Guineans who can who can who, Train can, who technicians. Can, there are no technicians. And in a country which is which is yours, but from which you are and always will be, in a way, divorced, because of, you know, because of your experience. And this obtains on every level, from the most private, that is, the difficulty of, of a Guinean male going back to to um, a country where women are still not educated. If he's been, use, you know, if he's been dealing for all these years with Western women, or with westernized African women, you know. And his ways, his manners, which make him rather t- strange in all the villages. is not a hopeless estrangement. But it does create a certain kind of loneliness, a certain kind of... Um, I admire these people, I must say, very much. But it, um, it is a problem for all them. With that loneliness that
0: they found, the new kind of loneliness, <coughs> you know, leaving their, <coughs> the home of their childhood and coming to uh, a city of sophistication and devel- uh, technological development, yeah. except going back now to their home in a state of being rebuilt, yes. a new home,
1: yes. yet the problem of... I suppose, mat- material comforts, but more than that. More than that, much more profound, than material yeah. comforts. They're very grave problems of what precisely is the relationship of, an a- of Africa to Europe, which is a very, uh, an immense problem. Um, which way, how, you're confronted with the necessity of really, literally, of creating a country with your fingernails, you know? You've got to dam the rivers, Europe never did. You've got to build roads, Europe never did, you know? You've got to educate the children, Europe never did. You have a million things to do, and you are—Africans, you know, are, are still— because of, because of our asininity, you know, trapped in the Cold War. I had, I had not met a single African who was the least attracted to Moscow or Peking. And they resent, and I don't blame them, you know, our innocent assumption that uh, they're such children they can make up their own minds. And there's no reason to suppose, by the way, they, that they could imitate us either, you know.
0: So then what they are or seeking Or that they should. Or that they should. What they are seeking then is their
1: own way. They are Need not to be find West nor East, right. but their own way. Something else, something and I think, from my own point of view, that the world could certainly stand, you know, a new way. A new way. <laughs> <laughs> and loneliness again. This is obviously
0: it's a key aspect of life. It's on your mind, Jim, since it was one of the basic aspects of your novel, Another Country which I, I must admit I haven't read it, and I apologize, but... I'm gonna, I'll but, get it for you. Th- th- <laughs> thank you. But the theme of loneliness, there's a loneliness that <coughs> uh, the Parisian dancer had, uh, the Senegalese Parisian returning to her home country. Did you find this kind of loneliness when you, you were in Paris and you came back to America? So it was a wholly different problem. Yes, in a way
1: I did. I never thought about it in that way before. In a way I certainly did. I came back... Um, I came, I came back, in a certain way you never can come back. Uh, and I had to build a whole, a whole new life, because the life that I left, uh, you can't pick it up. You know, old friends um, are not old friends anymore. Something has happened to you, something has happened to them. Um, you can't talk to them. There's a great gap between you, you know. There's certain habits you've lost, certain habits you've acquired. In certain ways you become more definite, you know, because time does pass, you know, and so therefore there are certain things that you no longer tolerate, really, you know, and certain things you no longer need to do. And every voyager who leaves this country and comes back to that country is always regarded with some suspicion by the people whom he left, you know, when he he returns. And you can't endlessly go about, you know, apologizing for having left either. So you have no choice but to pick up from where you are and try to establish a life in the terms of the country in which you are living now, uh, which I found very difficult to do. Really, to tell the truth. I, it's astonishing. I didn't. I never thought of that. You know, my solution in a way was to work, which I suppose uh, says all that can be said. You know about what happened when I came when I came back. I'm still very lonely here in a way. You know. Uh, what is the? the go ahead. I'm sorry. What way? Well, I don't know. There's certain things that I've learned to take for granted. Certain assumptions I make, which. Um, I, I really do assume, you know, that there's a, that there's really no difference between whites and blacks. It's not something. that's not an attitude of mine. You know, it's a, I don't operate on the basis on that basis. You know, I really don't. Most people here do, and and they do on the mo- in the most unexpected context on the most unexpected levels. You know, so that you're always finding yourself in the position of either shocking them by some inadvertent remark, or being shocked by them, being shocked in fact, by their naivete, by their by their profound immaturity, by their I could almost say they're cowardice, you know. I consider, this may sound, this is a very rash thing to say, but I consider that I'm 38 years old and if I haven't found out some of the facts of life now, I never will, you know. And I think I know some of the facts of life, you know, I've had to swallow them. And then there are moments in this country when you feel as though you're trapped in a kindergarten. You know, trying to spell out to very well-meaning children uh, how to spell cat, what what apple is, and they're very earnest about it. It's this, it's this,
0: let's assume for the moment, well-meaning, uh, this is an assumption, but this immaturity that you've come across in the matter of race relations, for one, using well, it's not thing, only in race relations. But in everything.
1: It's in, it's in oh, it's in love, it's in, it's, it's in politics, God knows, you know. I don't believe, for example, that, that there are three out of four Americans who have any idea of what really happened in Cuba, what our role was there and what the meaning of the present impasse is you know and they're taking their, their they're taking their decisions about cuba from the from the from the press which i think has been extremely irresponsible in this, in, the, in this in this case and I'm very prepared to act out on act out on a principle which i have no no means whatever understanding and don't and don't really understand the danger that cuba represents cuba represents a very great danger but we are responsible for having created it Sponsor. It's this level of immaturity that I mean, you know, which is, which is so frightening. Of the acceptance of clichés That's as right. a truth, and the, as and a, the whole truth. And the inability, you know, the refusal almost to think. The same way that people suppose, I guess, I gather they suppose, that there is some legitimate debate between Mississippi and the United States, you No, know? I don't see there are two sides to that question, you know. It's a question which should have been resolved a hundred years ago, and it never had two sides. This
0: is rather interesting, the uh, two sides to a crazy kind of coin here. And the coin is not a legitimate metal, apparently. And that's the seeing only one
1: side vis-a-vis Cuba, but seeing two sides vis-a-vis Mississippi. Yes, yes, yes. And by the way, this has great repercussions in Africa, too. I'm very glad I'm not in West Africa this morning, because to try to explain to, to anyone in Africa what the government is doing, why those mobs in New Orleans, why this fantastic hassle about uh, letting somebody have a cup of coffee is a very unenviable task, because it can't be defended. And on the other hand, you have, one has no right, I think one has no right, you know, to, um, to allow the Africans to, to, um, to cling to or to be submerged by all their misapprehensions about the United States, you know. One is always in a position when you're out of the United States of having to say, well, it's not that bad, you know, even though something in the back of your mind whispers, maybe it is, you know. But still, one has got whatever, whatever cause to try to achieve some kind of clarity, now, therefore, you have to try to explain the relationship of the states to each other and the whole history which has resulted in this terrible impasse, do you know? But irreducibly, irreducibly the African asks you of, uh, ultimately, well, if I were in your country and if I were an American, what would happen to me there? This handicaps, this handicaps um, all the American efforts in Africa, much more than Americans are willing to realize. And when you have a situation in which a government is willing to invade Cuba in order to free the Cubans, as it says, and cannot get one Negro boy into the University of Mississippi, the African wonders, who do you think you're fooling? Yes. And I don't blame him.
0: There's another point that you raise here that I find amusing and sad, not too amusing, really. The point, it is bad for our reputation abroad. So we say, this is not evil per se. You know? But the editorial so often says, oh boy, what they are going to make yeah. of this. Yeah, well, that's and not we that. must behave yeah. No. Uh, in a Christian manner, only because
1: others will think ill of us if we don't. No, we have to do it because it is right, and the reason we don't do it because it is right, but it's because we, it's because we're so, we are so immature to come back to that, and and uh, and, uh, and have been so unwilling to think hard problems through. So it's a combination of two then,
0: two aspects of life that uh, touch you: the loneliness and the immaturity,
1: and perhaps they're one, aren't they?
0: Yes, I I and mean, I the they loneliness are.
1: may stem from the immaturity. Yes. Well, you know. You can be you. You have the right to be immature quite some time, you know. But if you're immature, let us say beyond the age of twenty-seven, you are not any longer immature. You are frozen, you know. And the only way you could then grow up would be would be would demand then a cataclysm, you know. You had to be broken up into pieces and then put back together again, which most people can't survive. In order, to, you know, in order to become a man or a woman. But if you're frozen in this peculiar way, then you can only be lonely because you can't. You haven't any. You haven't got any basis on which to operate which leap out to others. You have no, um, no dance floor. No dance floor, yes. A good. Jim, how then, what do
0: you suggest for a process of unfreezing? Oh, God. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, really, I don't know. Um, you would have to, you would have to begin by doing very dangerous things. it's it's such an individual matter you have to Dangerous you have know, to ask yourself very very hard questions about the way you want to raise your child you know which standards which values you think he should you know he should accept and which standards which values you think he should he should not accept and you have to be very very you have to be you have to be dangerously rigid about it you know i think and this is not a very attractive way to put it but um, if you don't believe in God, well, I think you are obliged to raise your child that way. You know? And if you do, of course, you are obliged to raise him that way. I think what I'm trying to say is that you, you have, we have no right any longer to compromise for expediency's sake and to go along with the social pressures because it seems easier to do it that way. I think precisely that, that sense of expediency is what is, you know, is responsible for our trouble now. But you see how difficult it becomes on, on, the, on, the, on a purely social level, and on a deeper level, one's got to ask oneself what one really believes. Most of the liberals I know have really got to ask themselves what they really feel about miscegenation. On a personal level, and not as a, not as a kind of uh, abstract favor to me. I don't care what, you know, I'm not important here right now. What is important is what you really think. What you really feel. It
0: has to be personal then, to... Finally, right it way, has to be again. personal. Everyone wants yes. to avoid this, yes. but... Is where everything begins. That someone speaks as, you know, as of course miscegenation is right. As you say, in an abstract, sociological way, but then it has to be thought of in personal, immediate terms. That's right.
1: Otherwise, it really doesn't mean anything. And what is worse, if you're taking an attitude but you've never examined it, when a crisis comes, you'll be surprised at what you can do, what base things you can do. And what good things you can do? What good things you can do if you know what you're doing. But in that case, it cannot be an attitude.
0: It has to be what, a thi- what base things you can do if you're not as fully mature as you think you are. That's right.
1: That's right. When the attitude, you know, the attitude is called, when, when, when you're called upon to take a risk to defend what you say you believed. And then comes the period of rationalization. That's right. Of the excuses. Yes. I, w- I, w- I wouldn't mind, you know. Yes. Uh, but. But. I don't care if she marries him. However.
0: Yes. So it's the buts and the howevers that no. somehow must be... Uh, Pinpointed. That's right. And that's right. whenever we hear the but or the however, no matter how well meaning
1: that speaker might be, we've, we've apparently got to stay with that but or right. however. That's right. Because that's where the key is. That's where the key is. What is really demanded in this country, I think, you know, it's very important, and it probably won't be done, is that we surrender the notion, surrender the notion of being a white nation. It is an absolutely useless idea anyway, you know. And with 22 million Negroes here occupying the peculiar and dangerous position that they do. We cannot be called a white nation anymore. And if we could make this revision in our optique.
0: This then is wrong. The, the acceptance of the phrase or the idea or the image, a word I hate image, a vision of white nation, is just as wrong as, say, uh,
1: I, don't know if the, I don't know if this is the black Muslim idea, not say a black nation. Both it, are equally wrong. They're both equally wrong, yeah. yes. And I would, I would hate to see the old nightmare repeated for the next 2,000 years with as we say, the shoe on the other foot.
0: The shoe on the other foot. You know, there are far, far more people of color in the world than mm-hmm. Caucasians. Mm-hmm. And this is too something I suppose that we as white people, not from the standpoint of just protection, but from the standpoint of moralities, we should think of, standpoint of reality, Yes, there are far more, far more people of color in the world than, than Caucasians. This is the way it
1: is. This is the way it is. And you know, we all know, we don't all know, but we are not the self, not. We are not the anointed. We're the self anointed, yeah, not yeah, the anointed. Yes, exactly. We're not the chosen of God, as you know. As white people who always seem to think, because it creates a very peculiar situation in which white people seem to think that the closer a Negro gets to be like them, the better he is. Well, I don't, I don't accept that proposition at all. You know, I mean, I don't mean to suggest that the, better you, the more you become like me, the better off you are either. But uh, I don't see any reason why we can't live. You know in peace, as it were, you know, and enjoy the things which, may, which are different. With our own us. uniqueness. That's right. That's right. I'm thinking of, of you
0: and on a panel show, this a couple of years ago, and he was a good man, and he said to you somewhere in the discussion, it was rather heated, you held your own very well, but he said to you, I accept you, and you said to him, I don't mean to be rude, sir, but who are you to accept me?
1: Well, yeah. This is, this is this is that's what I mean. And most people, most, people, most white people most people make the assumption quite innocently. Do you know? Who am but, I to accept you? Yes, really. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to find where the
0: holy oil came from. But I can't find <laughs> it out. <laughs> Jimmy, the, I know that uh, y- your comments on all these matters are are perceptive and, and deep, and uh, they affect the listeners. Uh, and we interested, everyone is, in what you as a creative
1: artist do. You finished the book, you, I understand you're working on a play. I'm working on a play, yeah. Um, I'm going to take that plunge, which I should have done maybe a couple of years ago. I guess I'm doing. to see if I can. It's, I have two plays, actually. Um, one play is nearly finished and it will probably be done off-Broadway this fall, think, as soon as I get the second act in some kind of shape. The other play is longer, not scheduled for anything yet except the actors studio. Where I intend to work it out um well, I guess come spring, if I can get a hold. I want to work with Sidney Poitier. in oh, it. Oh yeah well, he he'll, he'll, he'll be in it, you mean. Well I I can't I can speak for him. No but I mean but he, it's a role involving. When we, when we're Sidney gonna Poitier. we are gonna work at the workshop together, you know.
0: Would it be premature
1: to ask you what the theme is? It's difficult to say. Uh, it um, takes place in the deep south two acts, first in the church, second in the courthouse. It's framed within the, the play begins after a Negro boy of about 20 has been killed, and no one quite knows who did it. It's, and it's a very small town, which is an embattled town, because Negroes are, make, are, not, are, you know, are, are, are boycotting several stores, and the town has begun to feel it. Um, the premise of the play is that we are pretending to search for the boy's murderer. So, we, what we see, what we see is the course, you know, the course of events which led to the murder. And the result of this is: of the three people in the play, the three important people in the play? There are the boy who plays um, the Negro boy's father, who is one of the leaders in the town. Um, there's a good white man in the town, who's about 40, kind of rust about, well-meaning, and really a very good man, and the murderer. Now, the good white man is the best friend of both the father of the murdered boy and of the murderer. And what, is, what happens in the play, really, is that all these people, or these two people, especially the, the, the good white man and the, and the good black man, let us say, you know, are forced to examine themselves in a very rigorous way, because finally the responsibility for the murder, which is, according to me, shared by almost everyone in the town, you know, it's redu- it revolves on them, and especially the white men here, you know, to force the murderer to confess. But the, but the father has also some things to confess of his own, the ways in which he failed.
0: It's a play then of self-examination and the chain of guilt. Yeah. The question, the chain of... Yeah. Uh, that all, in a sense, being guilty. Yeah, yeah. Because isn't this the... It's funny how a creative spirit today returns, almost inevitably must come to that, that, that target. The guilt, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. It's a terrible, um, it's a terrible yet conundrum. Yet, yet cannot be avoided. No, I mean, it can Certainly, no, it can. You, you must face this. Uh, it's a, it's only the only way you can accept your responsibility, I suppose, you know, once you've once you begun to examine the guilt and, and uh, also begin to be rele- you have to be released from it in order to you know, in order to function.
0: I'm not too hip
1: to but existentialism, but I think this
0: is uh, de Beauvoir's position, Sartre's position. I think this I think is so. It. It's that every man, it's an affirmative, violence, it's affirmative. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, affirmative. Each man yeah. can, each and of must take a stand, when mm-hmm. he committed, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the chain of responsibility comes to him, even no matter how much out of it he thinks he is. That's right, you cannot be innocent. So this is your play, then? Yeah. You cannot be innocent, yeah. yes. That is not acting, is acting.
1: Uh, Not taking part is taking part. That's right, that's right. That's right. There is no place where you can sit down and say, it has nothing to do with me. So this comes back to uh, all of us
0: sitting here and Mississippi Mm -hmm. and uh, every other aspect that that bugs us one way or another. That's right. So it comes back to the the individual again and James Baldwin. Perhaps uh, one more subject, Jimmy, of your adventures. You've been in town to cover... Uh, this seems to be in a lighter vein, yet it isn't, it's all connected, uh, the, the headweight fight between Sonny Liston and Patterson, very brief fight, and you spoke to both. Uh, is there anything, that, in speaking to Floyd Patterson, to Sonny Liston, uh, both American Negroes, uh, both expert, well it's going to be a question in one case, but expert craftsmen, both being champions, you know. Uh, did you have a, a, a feeling, as an observer, of the two men, the phenomenon itself, the fight,
1: I had a very strong feeling about, about both of them. I talked more to Floyd Patterson than I did to Liston. I must say, I like Floyd Patterson very much and I admire him very much. Um, how can I put it? Um, he has something some fantastically gentle and very, um, again, very lonely and very tough in him, you know. In a way, the only way I was—he's a gentleman, he, or he's a he, you know he's a he's a real man. He, there's something in Congress. There was something for me in Congress—the spectacle of him occupying, you know, in that world. Though that may have something to do with my lack of knowledge of the boxing world. Um, I don't know how to. I can't. I can really say what I felt about Floyd Patterson, except that I suppose what I felt mainly was his immense, you know, an heroic struggle, you know with the circumstances and with himself, you know, to support the position which, you know, the position of the heavyweight champion of the world, which is in some ways a very baffling position. And I must say something which is perhaps rather reckless. Um, When I watched him with the press, and he handled himself, you know, very beautifully, one was yet aware of a great gap between their, their sense of reality in general, there were exceptions to this, but in general their sense of reality and his sense of reality, and that he was terribly aware of this gap too, that there were things, elements of him as a man and as a boxer which they were not prepared in any way, whatever, to, to deal with. And it's certainly one of the reasons, you know, that, um, the press has often been so, um, Ambiguous about Floyd. He's he's uh, he's very proud in a very, in a in a quite intransigent way, and he is simply so far from looking or sounding like um, what we think of anyway so of as a box fighter. You know that I think he baffles, you know, and um, and even intimidates, you know, a great a great many people, and I think he knows this, and I think it increases his 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 his, his loneliness. As for Liston, I liked him very much. He um, didn't impress me as being as, as tightly organized, you know, as as Floyd, but very direct and very uh, and very intelligent. Quite a part, you know. The press is entirely wrong about that, and with a great dignity, you know. From the from the pre- from the point of view of the press, I suppose is. Um, if you were quite right, you, you compared him earlier to a blues singer, Big Bill. Big Bill, yeah, very much so. If he were a singer, yeah. the things he says and the way he comes on, yeah. you know, would be taken as charming. Yeah. But and, and let us face it, you know, Liston's criminal record is um, is appalling, I suppose. But I, but I must confess, I am not really particularly appalled by it. Um, everything depends what he does, what he now does with it. But there, I know I know too many people who come out of just those situations who are very admirable people, you know. To, uh, to be able to put him down for that. But because he is um, not singing, but boxing, and because he has to face the press in a way that s- a singer doesn't have to, have to do, and because the press has been so un- uniformly hostile to him, he, uh, you know, it seems to me that he, re- he reacted by being, uh, he, I didn't feel that he was being outrageous. I felt that he was simply giving as good as he got and holding his own, you know, and, the, and that the press took that as being outrageous. And anyone who really talked to him, you know, got a very different impression of him than you, than you get from the newspapers. So here them with two uh, wholly different
0: figures, each one equally impressive in his own way. Mm-hmm. I suppose the big question is what will happen uh, in the development and the discoveries of Floyd Patterson. He made a discovery after he lost his first fight to mm-hmm. Johansson, that dark period of his life, and now
1: perhaps the, I have the a great most deal, so I have a great deal yes. of confidence in Floyd. He's on a very lonely journey, one of the loneliest journeys I've ever, I've ever, seen. You know, one of the most beautiful too. I think. I think he has a very long way. I think he will go a very long way. This has nothing to do with fighting. Now we're talking about no, Patterson no. the man. What he does actually, you know, um, in that on that level is, by comparison, irrelevant. There's something in him which he's got to deal with, and, and which will take him somewhere which will be very valuable, I think, for all of us. Yes.
0: This is, I know, premature to even mention, but this it seems to me that Floyd Patterson is the protagonist of some novel or play, certainly. I've had that suspicion that, too. Starts. I thought I'm sure you did. <laughs> <laughs> you do. <laughs> anything you want else you want to talk about, James Baldwin? You, anything that you feel like talking about? No, We've sort we of just haven't? bounced around. You know, um, there are too many things. You know, the changes. The beginning we were saying we spoke about since the time you appeared in this a couple of years ago in different places things have happened you know you said changes in you and I know it's difficult to say for you to yourself to say what the changes were in you
1: in outlook well Mary Moore put it once very well I think in fact she wrote wrote a few lines which which in some way you know I remembered when I was in trouble I think she has which says um, the weak overcomes its menace strong overcomes itself. What is there like fortitude? What sap went through that little thread to make the cherry red? And she also said, she said, that she was a life prisoner but reconciled, you know. I'm in some ways more reconciled, I think, than I was two years ago.
0: You're a little more reconciled than you were. Uh, that is to the, but you will still
1: be the rebel against that which you consider. Um, oh yeah, to be reconciled is not to be passive. No. At all. Oh, yes. I don't, consider, I don't really consider myself a rebel. I no. don't know what the word is. No, that's the wrong word, no. perhaps. But re- uh, reconciled. Recon- I, th- I think the word <coughs> reconciled is, is the one that attracts me. Reconciled, in what way? Well, reconciled, I suppose, to the life I have to live and the things I have to do, you know. And uh, you pray that you have enough um, in the bank. Pay all those dues you know enough from the spiritual bank yeah yeah you know, you know you never know whether you do or not but uh, it's just a chance you have to take um, I find myself in a place you know which I never calculated never meant to be in and uh, well you can't escape anything so if you can't escape it you've got to you know you've got to act and you got since there's no safety anywhere, you might as well take your chances, take, just take anybody else's chances. You know, The odds are just about the same, and if you're doing what you think you should do, at least um, at least you can live with yourself, you know, no, matter how, no matter how many other people you find you cannot live with. And so perhaps in
0: saying this, remember last time, the last question I asked you was, do you know your name? Who are you? And you said you're a writer, and you hope to be a good man, and to write well, and pray for rain. And this time, I say to you, I say, now you know your name even better. I know it somewhat so better school. than I did, Do you know. I'll find it out yet, though. So <laughs> well, on this journey, this is let's call this chapter two, uh, as far yeah. as we're concerned, of James Baldwin's journey. And for now, we say, so long for now, again, James. James Baldwin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stan.